Okay, this is another edition of Musical Explorations, and this week, as promised before, we're going to have an interview, a phone interview, with uh, American composer of Cuban extraction, Aurelio de la Vega, and we're going to listen to some of his music. Now, I have to give a warning here. I uh, had purchased a new piece of equipment to do this phone interview, and it took me a while to figure out exactly how to use it. So there's a slight hum in the recording with Aurelio. I tried to notch it out. I did a pretty good job, I think, but it's still a, a little bit there. So we are going to continue, and we're going to talk to Aurelio de la Vega. How are you today? I am still around. Well, uh, it's, it's, you're beating us all <laughs> in that respect. Well, this is a music show. I would like to talk, uh, you know, chit-chat, but uh, I want to talk about music. And, uh, and I'm gonna, I'd like to ask you a couple of things. One, I, I, I respect your, your ability as a composer, and I liked you as a teacher. I've said many times on my program that, I studied with you, and you were my mentor. And um, probably had you not been at that school, I never would have gotten through it. <laughs> well, you know, things are sometimes very peculiar. We always find in our road through life, when we study in any place, you know, it doesn't matter if it is California or Berlin or China, we always find the same thing, you know. We always find... Uh, an index of mediocrity and an index of logic. Sometimes the index varies. I mean, some places the idiots are more numerous than in others. But it's always like that, Ted. It's always incredible. Well, it's, I've discovered that myself. Um, now, <clears throat> in your music, and you've studied uh, uh, with some, some very well-known people. Name some of the people you've studied with. Well, my first, my first uh, teacher was a Viennese uh, pianist composer by the name of uh, Fritz Kramer. Then I studied mainly. I had tried to study with Schoenberg, but it was a very difficult relationship, and it didn't go any place. And then I studied for two years with uh, Ernst Toch. That was a very, very wonderful time. And uh, that was it, you know. They mean, there were some other people in Cuba... Uh, you know, local people like Harold Gramatche, the composer, and so forth, that also had something to do with my upbringing musically. Mm -hmm. But uh, b basically the main person that I encountered in my life was Kramer and Toch, those two, two persons, both of them from Vienna, interestingly enough. Well, Ernst Toch has a, a wonderful book called The Shaping Forces of Music, and I, I read the book, and uh, it's it's it had... We had something that practical <laughs> when I was studying. It would have been a lot easier. Uh, just very, very good device, uh, uh, advice for, for composers. <clears throat> if you had to 
typify. No, I'm not going to play any of your music while we're talking because it's a, your your time is much too valuable. I'd like to hear it and you can comment on it, but I don't think that's as important as as figuring out your your style. How would you typify your style? Well, it started to be uh, the style has lots to do. Uh, let's say you know there are two things in it. You know, one thing is the Q and elements, which are kind of subdued and uh, uh, manipulated. They are never blatant or very obvious. But it's uh, something that, you know, you uh, inherit when you're born, you know, the sounds of your childhood and your youth and so forth. They infiltrate through the windows. Uh, but that's a minor part. The, the, probably the most important part is the uh, Central European uh, fascination that I had when I started, uh, you know, opening my eyes to the world of music. Uh, by that I mean, uh, you know, the the German-Austrian complex mainly, uh, and it fascinated me not only, uh, you know, musically because musically it was very rich for me. And uh, you know, the first time I encountered Wagner, for example, I was 12 years of age, and and I was fascinated with those sounds and what it meant and so forth. But um, it is not only that; it is the you know the fact of the whole history of these countries, you know, the discipline, the organization, the philosophy. Uh, all these elements were very attractive to me. In Cuba, of course, you know, the main uh, influences were French and uh, second degree uh, American, uh, and for some reason, and Spanish, of course, Spanish definitely. You know, I mean, it was a very, very strong uh, link mm -hmm. with Spain. And for some reason, you know, I don't know, those things are mysterious. It's like why someone likes green and someone likes red, you know. For some reason, you know, I was not attracted to that kind of sound. So the early pieces, you know, were always based in a very chromatic, uh, pantonal kind of uh, idiom. Uh, then there is a later period, which probably is a more the most complex one of my catalog in which I went, uh, you know, the usual route, you know, platonism and, and uh, briefly serialism and then rejection of that and coming back to a new use of pantonality in a complete different way from before. Uh, the thing that always, uh, you know, uh, was upset with was the communication process that we had somehow lost in the in the last century, music became so complex that, you know, we lost the contact with the audience. And uh, music became an intellectual phenomenon instead of a social phenomenon, like always had been, you know. And music was always part of the, of the uh, tapestry of the society. And that worried me, you know, because on one hand, you kind of go back to C major because, you know, it doesn't make sense to repeat something that was done and was done marvelously for many, many centuries. But uh, there was a communication process that uh, worried me, and I tried to solve that communication process by two or three things. First of all, use of rhythms, which uh, mixed with the uh, chromaticism and the, shall we say, the, the idioms of, of, of atonality in a way, created a very different message because, you know, the, 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 the rhythmic element in music is a basic thing. And uh, we had also obliterated that to a degree, uh, and also, you know, to always try, even in the most extreme moments, 
to maintain a kind of lyricism and a kind of uh, uh, line, shall we say, uh, above uh, all the intricacies and all the combinations and so forth, that would somehow make a bridge towards the other people. So after a while, you know, when I contemplate, I am a very critical person. I, I criticize myself always dearly. Uh, I look at a piece of mind, and it's not mine any longer. It's uh, someone else that wrote it, and uh, I criticize it, and I find the good and the bad things. Uh, but all through the years, you know, when I contemplate now, for example, which I am now, you know, kind of a, in the winter years of, of existence, and I look back, I am pleased. I am pleased because there was a voice that, uh, that had a certain personality, and it's recognizable in many ways, sometimes in the twists of the harmonic procedure, sometimes in the verbal, shall we say, uh, elements of the music, and sometimes in the rhythmic elements of the music. And I contemplate that, and I, as I said before, I'm happy. I mean, I think uh, that I had uh, created a body of works that have some value. Uh, I don't know, you know, what final value they will have in, in the history of music. You know, I think that any creator that is not insane knows more or less where he is, you know. Uh, in a scale of 100, you know, you know if you are in 80 or in 90 or in 10 or in 15, unless you are deranged. And I know more or less what I am, you know. I, I, I don't think I am Beethoven or Brahms or anything like that, but I know that I am not, uh, you know, a stupid uh, boom, boom, boom composer either. So uh, more or less I know my place, and uh, I think I have achieved something. And uh, whether, you know, this place is 5% better or 5% worse, that's another thing that time will decide. But uh, I will disappear from this planet with a smile in my lips and, and so forth, because I think I have, as I said, not only done something, but I have done it decently, in a way, you know, musically speaking. Now, we've had since, uh, well, I, okay, I, I've done in this show a uh, examine, uh, a whole survey of, of since the beginning of serialism and then uh, the advent of uh, basic tonality like the American sound, like uh, Griffiths and, and uh, people like that, Roy Harris and uh, some of the Eastman School people. And, and that, that tonality never took off. It's, it's of course, extremely saccharine. Uh, I mean, it's, it's almost saccharine to the point of vomiting. But, um, you know, I, uh, the thing I liked about your music, and, and one of the reasons I think I, that attracted to me, uh, to you as a, as a teacher, was you have a, a kind of an innate sense of counterpoint. And that's important to me. I mean, counterpoint is really, uh, to me, the most interesting part of music. I, I like the harmonic thing. But, you know... The, the in between, you know, it's 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 not that anybody can come up with a theme, you know. Anybody can da 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 da, da you know. They can come up with a theme, but then what do you do with that thing, and and what techniques do you apply to it to make it interesting? And um, I I and all of your music, I mean, I I don't like all of it equally, but you know, I'm a composer, so I can't like all of it. Otherwise, that's what I'd write. But um, it, it, there's a certain, I don't know, it's an individuality. There's a something, a spark, uh, you know, 
you hear it when you listen to Prokofiev, and you you hear it when you listen to Schubert. You, there's, there's a something uh, extra there. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think the, the, the mystery of, of art, and of course in the case of music, maybe even more, because it's the most mysterious of all the arts, uh, there is that element which is, as you said, very, very definitely extra, extra reasonable. You know, I mean, there is something that occurs in the great composers that uh, is beyond a, a, a real explanation. It goes beyond that. It's something metaphysical. It's something, you know, sometimes you believe in God because when you hear, you know, some of that music, you say, well, something transcends, you know, in a way that sometimes, you know, I always say there are certain pieces in, in music that that I don't know how a human being could write that. Uh, you know, it comes to my mind, whatever, you know, uh, uh, moments of Beethoven or, or Mahler's Eighth Symphony or uh, Salome or Strauss, you know, they are, they are things which, you know, many great pieces of music, you can understand how they were written. Lulu. You admire them and so forth. But there are some things that you cannot understand how they were written. You know, they are beyond beyond the, the logic of the, of the manipulations. You know, it's this divine uh, inspiration, this, this mysterious thing that happens. It happens in Mozart. It happens in, in, in a moment of the Archduke Trio. It happens, as I said, in, in Mallory. It happens in Strauss. It happens, you know, these kind of things which are beyond logic, beyond reasoning, you know. And that is the magic of music precisely, and that's why it's eternal. You know, that's why... You know, sometimes uh, you know, people don't understand that I am not interested in, in pop music because, uh, because it doesn't have any message, it doesn't have anything. You know, I hear this thing 15 times repeated, and so, well, thank you so much. You know, in two minutes it disappears, you know. I am glad that you mentioned this thing of counterpoint because it is true that uh, my music has lots of that, and I was always very obsessed with it. Because for me, counterpoint is not only the idea that there are levels and voices talking to each other, it's also part of a structure, you know. It's a structural device. It's a it's a kind of a of a mechanical manipulation in which the technical aspect of the form comes into play. And I am very pleased with that because, for example, there are pieces, there are pieces of mine like Tropimapal, you know, the 1983 piece, in which I am employing nine instruments, and many people think it's a chamber orchestra because you hear. All this enormous amount of, of voicings, you know, and inner colors and so forth, that you think you're in the presence, not of nine instruments, but in the presence of 40 instruments, you know? And that pleases me very much when I hear it myself. As I said, I am very self-critical. Uh, I am very happy that this is part of my style, this is part of my vocabulary, you know? Right. Well, it's important to me. I mean, it's 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 it's, first of all, it's one of those things that, has been throughout music. I mean, music goes through different cultural styles and there's different personal styles. But counterpoint has always been like the holy grail in a sense. And um, I remember uh, uh, somebody was uh, said to, to Beethoven, you, you, you can't write counterpoint. So he wrote the, the, the movement in the se uh, Seventh Symphony, you know, the, 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 uh, the gorgeous counterpoint. So, no, it's not to me, the most sophisticated counterpoint in the world. A lot of it's just a kind of drony thing, but still, it's you can hear both voices, and that's important. If you're, if you had to take one work 
that you've written. Now, I, I remember, listen, I worked on one, I think it was called Interpolation, the one that we did with... Clarion's piece, yes. A uh, very difficult piece. And um, and then uh, Maida did a piece for the L.A. Phil. Well, he did three. He did uh, uh, this, the, the, the second one, the Intrata for Orchestra, is probably the, the piece for orchestra of mine that I am more pleased with because I think it's the one that is more perfect in time and in shape and in balance and so forth. Many people love Adios, which is a bigger piece, you know, and has more elements maybe into it. But I think in Trata, which is in 1972, is among the orchestral pieces, uh, the most successful one for me. And in the other ones, in the chamber works, I think there are two that come to my mind always. The String Quartet of 1957 even, uh, which is in memory of Alvan Berg in five movements, and uh, also the Tropimapal that I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. These are very, very special to me. I think they are very, very successful in in what the the desire of to write a piece was and the outcome of it. Well, we're going to play those pieces. Uh, I have the CDs you sent me, and I've also found, interestingly, uh, down in South America there is a, a a repository of some of your music that's. And um, they've put it online, and you can go get recordings of it. It's, you got to hack into it, but uh, I don't think anybody would mind that um, if we get a good piece. Uh, minimalism. <clears throat> Minimalism's all the rage. It's been since, well, 64 when Terry Riley wrote in C. And now it's everybody's doing it. Uh, have you ever been attracted to any of the ideas of minimalism at all? No, not at all. You know, minimalism for me is a is a very interesting social phenomenon because in the first place, you know, I remember once asked Boulez, what do you think of minimalism, you know? I asked him also. Yeah, and he said, well, it's minimal music. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> as I've mentioned about Boulez, he was totally convinced that nobody other than himself was writing anything worthwhile. So. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, that's the other extreme of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, the thing is that uh, I think minimalism has something to do with the cultural moment of humanity, mainly in the United States and only in Europe to a degree, in which, you know, the drug uh, uh, situation, the, the, uh, the hallucination of drugs and, and, you know, the marijuana stick and so forth came into play because it's a music that, that becomes precisely that, you know, it becomes like a nebula, uh, more or less interesting. I mean, some of the minimalists are very stupid and very idiotic. Some of them have, you know, a little more to say. But uh, I find it very, uh, very uninteresting because, you know, I, first of all, I find it as an idea, uh, I find it primitive, you know, no matter what, no matter how clever you can be and this and that and the fourth and the colors and, you know, I find it uninteresting, you know. It's non-developmental in reality. One of the great things of Western music was precisely the the, the idea of the variation, you know, the idea of the of the constant uh, elaboration of something, you know. Sometimes spectacularly, you know, when you hear the last movement of the Jupiter Symphony or something, you say this is incredible, you know. I mean, this is the the, the great thing. And then you go to minimalism and you hear the contrary. Now there is a tremendous amount of of, of differences. Uh, talent-wise even, you know, in the movement there, you can find the music of John Adams more interesting than the music of X or whatever, you know. But basically, you know, uh, I am not precisely interesting, you know. I, 
I remember, you know, you you hear you hear sometimes, uh, you know, things of Philip Glass, which once in a while I I tune into it to see if I am wrong or if I something I missed or something whatever. And uh, I found it uninteresting, you know. I mean, you know, you you you. I remember that Christopher Columbus opera, you know, in which uh, you are seated and in, in front of a music for two and a half hours, and you know, it's almost all the same. Columbus, uh, old or Columbus young, or or Isabella or Fernando the Indians or the Columbus, uh, uh, you know, ending or whatever. I'm sorry, you know. I mean, there is no characterization in reality. There is nothing that changes from one thing to the other. And this I find very uninteresting, really. Well, um, I've talked to Phil, and um, I, I, I don't know where he'll fit overall in the thing. I mean, he is changing, but I think his best piece that I think he's ever written, he wrote this film score for a film called Mishima, and it actually was pretty good. And his, his music does fit film well, but... Uh, but forget Philip Glass because, but uh, think of someone like Stephen Reich, who I mean has done some quite interesting works and um, and in fact uh, this work uh, not the latest but the one he did a while back called The Cave, pretty he's getting he's getting more and more abstract. It's it's very interesting. He's a, he's getting away from his indeterminacy uh, phase that he was in now. Things are more more precise. But, uh, you know, if it, uh, it's a cultural thing. I mean, he came up in this generation, you know, with Lamont Young and, and all these people. This was the, the way he went. He decided to take this music and try to do that thing. Did you ever think um, when you were writing and when you were doing your things that you were establishing any kind of school or do you think that you're more of a, interpreter out of, let's say, German expressionism, that type no, of thing. No, I don't think I am a, a revolutionary in that respect. I am a revolutionary within the parameter of Cuban music. I mean, if you take the history of Cuban music, then I am revolutionary. Because at the time I began writing, you know, people were you know, super nationalistic with a little flag and so forth, and Lecona and all these bland things, you know, and, and so forth. So in that, in that frame, yes, I was a revolutionary. But in the context of the world, I don't think that I am a contemporary, I'm a revolutionary. I think I am a, you know, like, like in history of music, you have a mind like Mozart, all right? What is Mozart, a revolutionary? No. He, he, he's the pinnacle of something, and he perfected something that he inherited, and, and he did it magnificently and so forth. So then you have, you know, Beethoven. Yes, these are revolutionary things, you know, so forth. Uh, and then you have uh, Brahms, non-revolutionary, you know, and then you have uh, Wagner, yes, revolutionary. You know, and it goes back and forth like that, you know, and, and some composers are one thing and some composers are the other thing. And sometimes the revolutionary is not precisely the best composer, sometimes cannot uh, fit together, or vice versa. Sometimes the, the uh, evolutionary or the continuous uh, traditional composer is not precisely the best either. So it's, it's something very individual. But in the context of universal music, I don't think I am revolutionary. I have not invented anything completely different or anything, that, you know, uh, uh, groundbreaking in that respect. The only thing that I think is that I have inherited all kinds of elements and all kinds of influences and parameters and whatever. And within that frame of reference, I think I have done a decent job. Now, is it important, though, to come up with something new? I mean, 
Uh, Mahler really didn't come up with anything new, certainly wrote what would be considered some fantastic symphonies. I don't know that, that uh, Strauss came up with anything new. Um, you know, we know Liszt wrote that atonal thing, the Mephisto dances thing, uh, but he didn't pursue it. Yeah, he, 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 and it wasn't atonal in the sense of the Schoenbergian abstraction. It was uh, it's atonal in the, just in the sense that it's, 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 it's in tones and it's in keys, but it's not, or it's on keys, I guess you would say, more precisely. It's not in any key. Well, I think what happened with that is that it depends on the of the moment of humanity. It depends on the on the you know if you take Haydn, you know Haydn, uh, you know was a man that that wrote uh, you know 110 symphonies, and, and and all of them are exactly beautiful and magnificent and so forth. But no one would ask him at that time, you know, in the moment of, of his life, no one would ask him why don't you write something different, you know, with each piece. No. He wrote these magnificent works, and everyone was happy, and everyone was pleased with what he did. Some people admire him more than others, whatever, and that's it. Then you come to our time, which is a time of constant, of constant changes and changes and changes, you know, which is part of the technological revolution, too. Every, every day you have a new phone or something, you know? Oh, yeah. And, and people keep, for example, I remember with Pendereski, you know, the guy discovered a, a world of sound and discovered many, many uh, things to do with the, with the orchestra. And then people were mad because everyone, you know, what should he do next different? You know, why, he, why he's repeating. Yeah, this is insane, you know. What do you mean he's repeating? Yes, he's repeating. I mean, the guy did something very original, and he wants to repeat it ten times. Fine, you know. So it's, it's, a, it's a moment, moment, moment thing, you know. Some, some, some moments in humanity are, are more or less relaxed moments, and you enjoy what is around, and some moments are... Very innervating, like in our time, you know, everyone is, is in a hurry, everyone is, a, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the span of attention is minimal, you know, people are accustomed to snippets of things, you know, if a piece is more than, than five minutes, I get bored, you know, and, oh, yeah. you know, this, this kind of business. No, I've heard those things. Even if I was in our time, imagine, you know, there, there are people that don't, cannot even approach it because they kind of, you know, phantom hearing a piece that is 45 minutes, you know. Well, uh, they won't sit still for it. Well, I had a... Uh, uh, I talked with Boulez about that very same thing, and um, not about Penderecki necessarily, but um, uh, but the idea that that you can sometimes you can create something that is at the limits of your ability to go far out in a sense, and and what then what do you do with? I mean, how do you go? For, further? Uh, uh, I use this always this uh, this this little uh, analog. John Cage uh, wrote uh, uh, four minutes and 33 seconds in 1947. Now, what in the world do you do to expand silence? I mean, wh where does he go next? What, 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 what is there for somebody to grab onto and say, well, I'm going to write four minutes and 34 seconds? Eight, eight minutes, 17. To <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know. <laughs> there's, there's, in other words, it's, it's a punctuation point. It's the end. Why, you know, so nice concept. Okay, there's some concept behind there, the sounds around you and the, this. But in reality, it's, it's, it's a joke. In, in the ultimate reality, I don't care how you coach the thing, the intent is, is, a, is a concept, not 
a piece of music. And that, to me, is, a, is important. I mean, uh, it, to, to me, it doesn't matter what, how people accept your things. I mean, you, I write. Most people, where I live, it's, it's like writing for Martians. I mean, it's just, it, doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't stir the waves here, in the sense, because nobody's, you know. So, um, I, but I send it to other places in the world, and people are playing it. You know, so and they they like it, you know, so uh, but no, not not here. And here it's uh, it's uh, oh, well, our orchestra can't play that. We can't. Well, I think the, the state of affairs nowadays in the United States is very sad. I think that, uh, you know, we are part of that uh, boss that takes us to absolute mediocrity and absolute robotic ideas and absolute anti intellectual ideas in which everyone is below sea average, that's the ideal citizen, you know, the person who doesn't think or discuss or questions, you know. And uh, this is part of the thing that is happening with, 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 with classical music, too. Classical music here is almost disappearing, you know. I mean, there are no audiences, and, and, and uh, this, the educational system is abysmal, you know. I mean, we have destroyed every possibility of making kids really, you know, intelligent in front of, of, of the knowledge of, 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 of things in mankind. The idea is to obliterate and obliterate and obliterate. Every, every single piece of history is politicized. Every single, you know, you're, you're writing music and they are talking about any, any other element, whether it's for the poor or for the homosexuals. Or the, what in the hell is that, you know? I mean, are we talking rationally? Are we talking as logical human beings? Or are we talking like, like idiots, you know? And this has permeated completely and totally. So, of course, your music is for Martians here, you know? My music is for Martians here, you know? It would certainly make you believe that. But I will say, in China, they're, they're making orchestras faster than you can imagine. There's, they're, they're, a, a lot of energy is going in. And it's not state money. It's, very, it's all private money. It's very interesting. Um, I, I think state support of the arts has been a disaster for us. I, I think it's just not worked out well as uh, there was a, a a woman i know who was not really a composer kind of a pianist but her name is sandra Lowe. she was on kusc for a while and we got a grant when i w had ex indigo down there and we were doing some pieces and she says how did you get a grant from la and if you weren't a cambodian lesbian one-legged prostitute <laughs> <laughs> that's very good <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I, I said I don't know. I, I said it's because we want to play the music of Cambodian lesbian one-legged prostitutes. It's a, but uh, yeah, I, I had to I had to write this grant to say we're going to play three underrepresented composers. But you know that's that's to me that's like it's it's like discrimination of a sort. It's like saying. They, they aren't good enough to be just regularly people. We've got to, we, we have to give grants for them. But their music is just music. I mean, it's not any, there's no politics in music. You can't listen to music and say, that guy's a communist, that guy's a fascist, that guy's a pederist, that guy's a sex hound. We, you can't, there's nothing in music that gives you any of that. That's right. You know, it's, it's, it's intellectual. Okay, um, your uh, what is your one regret as a composer that you have not composed? You want to compose the one thing you would like to do? I would.
would have tried to compose an opera because I think my music, several people have said that, you know. Well, you're not dead. No, but, you know, an opera is a, is a major enterprise. It's something that takes a chunk of time, like I conceive it, you know what I mean? I can write an opera with the left hand and then sing an opera. No, no. It's a major, it's a major project, and it requires, you know, uh, all kinds of things, uh, energies and moments uh, of, of uh, confrontation and time and so forth. And probably I have passed that mark, but that's my regret that I never wrote an opera. <laughs> well, uh, I would like to hear it. So write it. Uh, we'll see if we can dig up some money from you somewhere. If I, but um, the uh, you know <coughs> Ernst Krenick, of course, lived to be quite old, and uh, and he he was writing right up to the to the day he died. He was composing, and uh, so was uh, you know um, uh, Elliot Carter. He he's writing. You know there it's funny thing because uh, there are. Some of the manipulations that you do and the things that Carter does are very similar. I mean, it's like there is a school out there that you're both kind of plugged into, but not because you're influencing each other. You understand what I'm saying? There's a a certain elegance, I guess. I guess you would say. In the I, I think it is a generalization that uh, applies very truly. You know, I think that there are certain moments in history and there are certain composers that even they are not fit into that moment in history, which uh, wants to deliver a message in which you are in that particular type of level. You know, I mean, you're in a level of, of seriousness, you're in a level of uh, uh, aesthetic, you know, commitment, you're in a level of uh, technical elegance, you're in a level of whatever. Even if you're extremely unpopular, even if you're extremely out of the mainstream, whatever, you know. And that is one type of thing. Then it comes, you know, the, 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 the second level where people, the, the avalanche, shall we say, of vulgarity and commercialism and all these kind of things that have invaded music in the last probably 40 or 50 years, uh, you know, affect them, you know. And then they, 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 they don't know what to go, what to do. Uh, what new gimmick to, to bring out, you know, should I bring out three plumes or should I bring out a black coat or whatever? And uh, that's, it, that's very sad because if you are at the mercy of, of fashion and at the mercy of, 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 of whoever is in charge of the political game, then you're doomed, you know? I would agree. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut this off. I don't want to, but I want to leave. Uh, I only have an hour show, and I want to play uh, the rest of the time. I want to play your music. Um, and talk to it, and uh, <clears throat> I want to call you again in a year. Okay. And I want you to write an opera. Maybe I have written at least the first act. Well, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 I now I've gotten down. <clears throat> I wrote one for a little place in Hartford, uh, and it was a big one act, uh, and they got it and performed it, and then the company went out of business. <laughs> it, it had nothing to do with my opera. It had, they just had mismanaged their funds, and they were hoping this would save it. And even though they, they got a good audience and everything, they just couldn't, couldn't keep it together. Um, but I wrote it for six, six keyboards, and uh, it's based on uh, Tom Sawyer uh, and this, this fantasy that happens in the cave with, with, with Becky. So Yeah, yeah. It's an it's a interesting work. Very good. So you need to write an opera. Okay, my friend. It has been a pleasure, Ted, because as you know, I always have you in high esteem because of your commitment precisely to high art, and you have not wavered, and you have not 
fall into the usual pits and you are immune to the idiots and to the fashion. So that's very good. Well, I, I like composing. Yeah. And I like uh, music. I like people that make music and think about music. So okay. it's important, like yourself. So um, I'm going to play some of your music. It was very good. Thank you for this time. And uh, we will talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Have a good night. So that was Aurelio de la Vega. <clears throat> Obviously, he has a very strong opinions about art and music, and he's totally dedicated and uh, uh, totally involved with uh, contemporary music and art music. His stuff is played all over the world. Um, he's got some CDs out that I have, uh, and there's a, there is a repository down in South America, but it's difficult to access unless you're an academic, so it's, I, I don't know how valuable it is. But he has, and I'm going to play some uh, from this. He has this, uh, uh, it's called The Beautiful Cuban Woman. And it's on RYCY Productions out of Burbank. Um, and it's got other composers on it also. He has a trio. He wrote this in 1949. So let's hear what Aurelio de la Vega was doing in Beautiful, florid piece. Now, we have been through, remember, composer's devices. We've been through other shows where we talked about what devices composers were using to uh, write their pieces and compose their pieces. So what do we hear use here? Do we hear traditional harmony in the sense of the, the five to one? Remember that, that, that cadence, the five to one, the dominant harmony? We don't hear that. So we, we can't say this is... This isn't atonal in the sense of abstract tonality, where you're trying to dissolve all semblance of any tonal association, but it is 
more like a Chopin-esque type of, uh, of thing. It's uh, more florid and more uh, like Rachmaninoff or like uh, Strauss or like uh, that type of thing. Germans. Now remember, Aurelio was born in 1925. So, I mean, he's been now in Europe and he's had some schooling there. And um, as you said, he had a, fam a Viennese pianist that he trained with. So you can see it's kind of in that vein without any of the experimentalists. And uh, now John Cage, of course, is, is working in, in 47. I mean, he wrote Silence. He had already been in Europe and in Darmstadt and those places. But Aurelio's music isn't that. He is not adopting that school. Now, uh, as he said in his interview, he had uh, studied with Schoenberg a little bit. But let's hear if we can find something a little more abstract. Now, the first piece I, pl I played was uh, an orchestra piece and uh, it's called Adios, and it was written in 1977. But let's find an excerpt from something written in the 50s. This is called Danza Lenta, 1956. <laughs> Okay, a somewhat similar style. Now, this is just for piano. This is uh, Martha Marcina, pianist. She did a fantastic job. But what did we notice? We noticed, remember that, that falling thing? Dun, 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 dun. That's, there's no hard cadence in there. There's no five to one. So Aurelio is taking and using this idea of succession and repeating elements to provide cadence. Uh, uh, the descending line, and it's used in pop music a lot. This thing has a very jazzy feel to me, and, and I have a feeling that he in, intended that. It's kind of a jazzy with some little uh, motive uh, transformation. We saw how, to, how you could take a, a motivic idea and then transform it a little bit, and we've worked through that. And you've seen it and heard it in the piece there. So it is tonal in the sense that it's got in a key in there somewhere, but it's not in a key. You wouldn't say Danza Lenta is in A major. It's not that. It's it's uh, more like the remember back when we heard the uh, uh, the Liszt piece, the, the the Mephisto piece. You know, it's 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 tonal on keys, but it's not in keys. It moves around in a different way. So let's go up, jump forward. Let's go up to the '60s. On this same album is a little piece, uh, a 1967 called Antimonies. Let's hear what that sounds like.
Okay, now that's 11 years since the piece in 1956. Listen to the abstraction. Listen to the, uh, this is still uh, Martha Marchena and a wonderful pianist, and, uh, but listen to the abstraction. And, and I wonder if we played this alongside of another equally abstract work, if you would be able to pick out this work as an identifiable Aurelio work. It's the problem with this type of abstraction is unless there is some kind of a personal element in there somewhere that you can identify and use over and over again, it's very difficult to establish a personal style inside of abstraction. So, I mean, I could play another composer and I could say, this is Aurelio too, this is abstract. And you wouldn't know because you don't know Aurelio's music. But it is still very difficult. Let's jump forward. We were in the 60s and uh, let's play a little bit more from that, uh, the piece uh, that I played. Uh, uh, it's called uh, Adios. And let's play a little bit more of that uh, and, and listen to where it goes. <laughs> Okay, 
a mishmash of styles, I guess is what you would have to say. As there's tonal elements in there. There's thematic elements that pop in and pop out and move into abstraction. And it's kind of like surfacing like a dolphin. It goes underwater and it becomes very abstract and then comes up and surfaces and then goes down and changes in tonality uh, works in and things like that. Very Straussian in many ways. Uh, very much like, uh, like Richard Strauss, not Johann Walsking. All right, let's skip forward. We're going to go up. That was in 1977. So let's take a thing and listen to, uh, it's called Trope and Paul. It was written in 1983. It's also for orchestra. Okay, almost some Penderecki-like tone clusters in there. There's a lots of effects and percussion, a uh, very glassy sound. Now, would you say that the, the piece before and this piece, this is 10 years later, roughly, uh, from the same composer? It, you could find some elements. There are some elements in there, but there are some elements that, that are not, that have nothing to do with it. Let's take a look at another work. Uh, this is uh, from 19... Uh, uh, 1999. It's called Variacion del Recuerdo. Now, Recuerdo is a piece that's very famous. So it's a guitar piece, and uh, 
los recuerdos de la Alhambra written by Torrega. So it's not, it's a it's a recurring theme. Well, let's see if that if there are any together. I'll listen to it and I'll I'll report it. If I feel like playing some of the uh, the other recuerdos, I'll play them. They're usually big tremolo pieces, but let's see what this sounds like. Okay, no, no relation to the famous uh, recuerdos of, uh, of Terraga or any of the other ones that uh, are out there. It's for guitar. Um, and I think for piano, there's some for piano too. But, uh, 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 but he certainly breaks the orchestra up. We saw thematic development. We see kind of an input of tonal work. You see tonality creeping in. But it's not the tonality that is of the minimalist. This is t more solid tonality like it would be a, a Richard Strauss tonality or a, a Gustav Mahler kind of tonality or even a, a Wagner kind of, uh, of use of tonality. That, that whole idea of, of expression, the, the music being an expression, German expressionism, that type of thing. Now, I unfortunately don't have any of the more recent uh, Aurelio works. Um, he is, of course, still composing. 
Uh, but he's, he's actually going around getting a lot of performances now. As you heard in the lecture, I said you should write an opera. I don't know that he will ever do that. Um, but he is uh, still writing. He's, he's been going all over the world getting his works performed. And there, uh, there's a, a set of songs that he did with uh, his wife sings them, Anne-Marie. And they're called Transparent Songs. He's getting, like I said, quite a few performances of these things. So let's hear what they sound like. No, that was written in 1995. Like, I, like Aurelio said himself, he doesn't consider himself an a, a experimental composer in the sense of developing schools or anything like that. However, his music is evocative. It is very evocative. It's beautiful to listen to. It's not going to uh, 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 kill your ear. You don't have to develop and, and, and jump into some completely alien or abstract concept to understand his music. It's very approachable. All right, this is Ted Peterson. This has been Musical Explorations. Uh, we'll see what we're going to do next week. I'm going to surprise you. But uh, until then, support composers, commission works, call the symphony, tell them you want to hear contemporary music, call every music group that you're involved with and tell them you need to hear modern stuff. You just have to do it. And not modern in the sense of style, but modern in the sense of new, people that are composers that are working today. You don't want to be caught in a situation where your grandchildren come up to you and say, look, this great composer, and you lived by him, and you were alive when he was alive, and, and we've got all this great music, and how was it when, when he was alive and you were there and seeing this music done? And you can look at him and say, we didn't support him. Get involved and support new music.